Welcome, everybody, to the weekend message. Once again, we're looking at how to live a life of faith in a secular culture, in a culture that's increasingly hostile, especially toward the Christian faith. And this weekend, we're going to be looking at a story that is so familiar, even to a lot of people that don't practice Christianity. They've at least heard about this story and are familiar with it. The problem with stories that we're familiar with is that so oftentimes they are also the most misunderstood stories. And the story we're going to look at today, the true story, is Daniel in the lion's den, found in Daniel chapter 6. And you may think you know that story. I thought I did. But there's a whole lot more to it than what you and I may realize. And it's going to help us tremendously. It's going to help those of you who are parents tremendously in raising your kids in this godless environment that we find ourselves in. So let's jump into the story. Daniel chapter 6, you want to follow along, begins with a new ruler in Babylon because the Babylonians have been defeated. His name is Darius, and he's a Mede, and he's kind of reorganizing the empire, and he reorganizes it into 120 little provinces or little states. And he puts an officer or an official in charge of each one of those. And then above those 120 officials, he has a cabinet of three men, one who is Daniel. And those three men are equals who oversee the 120. But just like God was with Joseph and blessed him tremendously and gave him favor with the Pharaoh, God was also with Daniel. And God blessed Daniel. He was so wise and so knowledgeable and, and insightful. And he was a tremendous leader. And Darius could recognize that. So Darius takes Daniel and he elevates him over those other two that were his peers. And now, all of a sudden, Daniel has a direct line to Darius. And his peers are now his subordinates. Now, let me ask you a question. Has something like that ever happened to you? Have you ever been chosen to be the captain over your peers or were you chosen and given the promotion and now you became the boss over the people that used to be your equal there at work? Or have you experienced the other side of it when you've been part of a a group and somebody that, you know, was your friend or somebody you knew was elevated to now being the captain of the team or somebody you worked with, your coworker, your peer, now became your boss and you thought to yourself, why did they choose him? Why didn't they choose me? I worked just as hard. I've been here just as long. How do you think these guys felt about Daniel being elevated in the position that he was? Well, to answer the question, we'll jump into Daniel chapter 6, and I'm going to start reading at verse 4. It says that after Daniel was promoted, that the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way that Daniel was handling government affairs, but they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So they concluded our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. So the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, Long live King Darius! We are all in agreement, which isn't really true because Daniel's not part of this. We are all in agreement, we administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors, that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced, give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, 
will be thrown into the den of lions. And now your majesty, issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed, an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you think Daniel felt when he found out about all of this? How would you feel? What would you do? I mean, if I was Daniel, I would be tempted to just decide that for the next 30 days, I'm going to practice a very secret faith. I'm going to do everything undercover, so to speak, so nobody sees me. I'm going to put my faith on the shelf just for 30 days so I don't have to suffer consequences. But, you know, there's something these guys must have known about Daniel. And we're about to find out. Verse 10, it says, But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with his windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. I love that verse, and I love those words, as usual. As usual, Daniel just kept worshiping God. As usual, he kept praying. As usual, he kept living out his faith. And I'm so encouraged by that because, you know, you and I are living in a time when, as I've already said, our, our culture's growing increasingly hostile toward our faith. You experience that at work, you experience that at school, perhaps even a little bit in your family. We certainly experience the media and, and all around us in the way that people behave and, and the way that they speak and what they're thinking. How are you handling that? How are you doing with it? How are your kids doing with it? Are you kind of going in secret with your faith? Are you trying to blend in and kind of look like everybody else? Or have you decided maybe you're going to compromise some areas of your faith so that you don't have to take a lot of heat from your fellow students or from your coworkers? So you're kind of trying to find a way and, and, and maybe be more accepting of certain views and values that the culture now holds? Or are you going about your business as usual, loving God, praying, serving, sharing, active in your faith, unashamed of the gospel of Christ? It's an important question, and it's going to become even more important in the days to come for each of us to answer and for us to be able to pass on, those of us who are believers and have families, to our, our children and to our grandchildren as well so that the faith permeates. So how, how, does, how does Daniel do this? You know, how does he remain faithful the way that he was? How, how are you and I supposed to live like a Daniel in our day and in our age? Well, interestingly enough, Jesus actually gives us the answer. <clears throat> it's almost like a, a commentary that Jesus gives on Daniel. Let me show you what I mean. In uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says these words. He says, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it, Jesus says. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. Remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? 
If you make it salty again, it will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city set on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Daniel illustrates what Jesus is saying. He exemplifies this whole idea of being salt and light and how to bear up under persecution and under pressure. And he's a marvelous and, and powerful model for us, isn't he? So when I look at this passage of Scripture, there are some principles that stand out for me to know how I should behave and act at work or school or wherever I might be. And here's the first one. It's really simple. And that is the culture should experience you and me, Christians, as Jesus said, salt. Now, salt was an important commodity in the ancient times, more so than it is for you and for me. We think of salt as something we put on our food to, you know, add flavor and taste to it. But in the ancient times, uh, salt served a greater purpose. I mean, it was used to penetrate, penetrate and preserve meats like fish so that they wouldn't spoil. And so salt was very, very valuable to the people of the ancient days. They used it, and it really sustained their lives as a result of it. Now, in many ways, Daniel exemplified salt because he took seriously the words of Jeremiah that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Remember Jeremiah told the exiles when Nebuchadnezzar hauled them away to Babylon, he said to them, don't wall yourselves up. Don't isolate yourselves from the Babylonians. Penetrate the culture, he said. He said, reproduce, have children, build businesses, and work for the success of not just yourselves, but also for the Babylonians. Pray for them, because as they're blessed and as they prosper, you'll be blessed and you'll prosper. And you see Daniel doing that. And he does that, he does that at the epicenter of all corruption, politically and in the government. I mean, if there's a place that can ruin the, the most sincere and best intentioned people, it is at the seat of power. Not only do we see it in the ancient times, but we see it and experience it in our time as well. And yet Daniel is in that environment an environment that can so easily corrupt someone. And Daniel, in essence, was incorruptible. He stood strong. He kept his faith. And that's what God's calling you and me to do. To stay strong and, and to keep the faith wherever we are in the culture. Because the culture needs us. It needs to experience what it's like to follow God and to, and to walk with God. And if we hide that, how will, they, how will they ever know? I mean, salt doesn't do any good if it stays in a clump. Salt is powerful when it's diffused, like when you take a salt shaker and it comes out and you sprinkle it all over your food and it makes its way into everything that you sprinkle on your plate. It's the same idea here. That as followers of Christ, we're to make our way into the world. We're to penetrate the world. 
with what we call the hope of the gospel. So how did Daniel do that? Well, look at verse 4. In verse 4, it says he was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. Now, that is the best definition of what it means to be faithful that you'll ever find. To be faithful means to always be responsible, and it means to always completely trust God and be a trustworthy person. So for those of you who are our parents teaching your kids, you know, I'd encourage you, if you haven't sat down with them, to talk about what does it mean to be faithful at school? What does it mean to be faithful around your friends? What does it mean to be faithful as a, as a citizen in our, in our country? What does it mean to be faithful in the neighborhood? Two things. It means to, first of all, always, always be responsible and always Always be trustworthy. That is, trust in God. Be responsible to God. Does that define you? Does that describe you at work? Does it describe you and your family and your neighborhood? Does it describe you when you're playing sports? Does it describe your kids or you students? Does it describe you at school and around your peers? Would they say, yep, he or she is always faithful. Man, they're always responsible and they're completely trustworthy because, well, they got this anchor in who they call God. And they, they live for him. It's just like Joseph. You know, Daniel's just like Joseph. He was always faithful. He always gave his best because he always believed that God was in control. And the question is, do you believe that? Do I believe that? So we know, first of all, that salt is going to penetrate. And now let's talk a little bit more about the fact that salt also preserves. And that's part of your responsibility and my responsibility as well. That is to preserve because it's almost like salt seeks out what is rotting. Salt seeks out what is chaotic, what is disordered, and tries to, tries to clean it up, tries to preserve it. There's a sense in which you and I, as the followers of Christ, as his salt in this world, that we should be attracted to that which is rotting. We should be attracted to that which is in disorder, that which is chaotic. Our job is to go to that and bring order and to seek to bring hope as well. I'm excited about our legacy of hope vision that we have. And, you know, part of it is we want to, we want to affect 30,000 families in the Twin Cities over the next 10 years. And, you know, one of the ways to affect them is to help them with their marriages because marriages, if you haven't noticed, and I'm sure you have, are under tremendous attack these days. Nuclear families under tremendous attack these days. And so one of our responsibilities we feel that God's calling us to is to really strengthen marriages. And so we are preparing for a program called Reengage, which will help marriages get stronger and help troubled marriages get hope and get help. And we've got a whole group of leaders that are being trained in it now. And soon you're going to be hearing about opportunities to sign up for that at, at our campuses. And I hope that you will. You see, salt, salt seeks to preserve, and we're here to preserve the family the way that God established it, and, and we're bringing that hope. And here at Whitdale Church, 
in the next uh, couple of weeks, we're celebrating our ministries, not just here locally, but also overseas. We talk about here, near, and far. And so you're going to be hearing and seeing lots of opportunities for you to get involved in going to some of the hardest, most difficult places in the world where there is absolute spiritual and economic and moral chaos and bring, bring the preservation of the gospel, the hope that comes from Christ. And all of us, all of us, whether we're here or whether we're far away, all of us have the opportunity through our prayers, through our service towards others, and towards sharing our story and God's story to bring order, to bring hope, and to bring joy in this world that is so disordered and so chaos. And if I could just be really frank, it's becoming so rotten. The world needs you because you have the preservative in you, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Now, here's a question. What causes the rottenness in the world that we see? What's causing all the chaos and disorder and violence and troubles that we see? And we talked a little bit about last weekend in the message, and we said it's a result of pride. Remember what happened in the book of Genesis early on with our first parents, Adam and Eve? They didn't want to find their identity in God as their creator. In essence, what they said to God when they took that fruit was, we want to find our identity in ourselves. We want to be our own God. And last weekend, I used the illustration of the Titanic as kind of a, uh, a human monument to pride and what happens. This weekend, I'll refer you back to a very famous story in the Bible. When I say story in the Bible, by the way, I mean true story. And it's found over there in Genesis chapter 11 when the people decide they're going to build this great big city and this tower up into the sky. Listen to what they say in verse 4. And they say, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the earth. And I just want you to focus on that phrase, name for ourselves. Let's go make a name for ourselves. Let's create our own identity, in other words. And here's the point in all of this. Every time human beings try to build something or establish something on their own name, on their own self, on their own feelings, on their own idea of what truth is, it always, we have all of history to prove this, it always crumbles. It always falls down. It always ends up in chaos and disorder, just like we're seeing in our country today, in our culture, in a few short years compared to other civilizations that we have been around. We are decaying so quickly, so fast. And I can tell you why. Pride and this whole idea that, you know, I'm going to base my identity on myself rather than realizing that my identity is in Christ. And when my identity is in Christ, when all that's taken care of, I'm so freed now to be able to do what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28 and Acts chapter 1 verse 8, when he said, go to his disciples, go, your salt, go into the world, penetrate the world and bring the preservation of my love and my truth and my hope. And that's what God's called you and me to always be doing. It is not an option. It's not something I can think about and maybe do. It is something that I have to do. It's my job. Or to put it this way, 
our job as disciples of Jesus is not to go and make a name for ourselves, but to go in the name of God as our true identity. And out of our identity as God's children, change the world and bring order and hope. How do you feel about that? Does that excite you? Does that make your heart beat faster? Does it give you a sense of a purpose? Does it give you a sense of direction? It sure does to me. Despite all the chaos and nonsense that's going on around me, I know why I'm here. I know why this church, Wooddale Church, exists. We're to go to penetrate and preserve and bring hope and bring truth and bring order out of the love and grace of God. Jesus exemplified that, didn't he? I mean, Jesus left glory with his Father, left heaven, so to speak. And he came to where things were falling apart. He didn't go someplace where it was safe. He went to where the trouble was. And there he brought grace, and there he brought truth, and there he brought love and mercy and compassion, and there he brought forgiveness. And wherever Jesus showed up, good things happened. Can I ask you a question? When you show up and when I show up, at work, at school, in the community, wherever we go, do good things happen? When the church shows up in the world today, do good things happen? I I want it to be said that when you and I show up, good things happen. People are healed. People are, are given the truth. People are loved. People are clothed. People are taught. Families, children are encouraged. That's what I want for you, and that, that's what I want for me, and that's why I believe that God has left us here. We are to be his salt. But you know something? One of the powerful ways that disciples of Jesus can stand out in the world is in a way that most of us try to avoid. Watch this. As the disciples of Jesus, we witness to his love and truth by being willing to suffer the pain of rejection. That's what Jesus said. There are going to be those who reject you. There are going to be those who persecute you, Jesus said to his disciples, and that's true about you and me. If you're going to live faithfully like Daniel did, There are going to be those who are going to think that you're arrogant. There are going to be those who are going to think that you are hateful because you don't accept and believe and affirm their values. You believe in something else. And there are those who are going to try to cancel you. It may keep you from being first chair. It may keep you from making varsity. It may keep you from that promotion. It may keep you out of that club. Yeah, there may be some rejection involved. But a true disciple of Jesus continues on with business as usual, just like Daniel did. And just like God wants you and me to do. He wants us to shine for him. And what an opportunity to shine for him when we're experiencing rejection. And people are pushing back at us as a result of our love for God. You know, somebody has put it like this. They said, you know, Jesus came to make us better for the world, but the world doesn't always like us for it. 
But be careful you don't buy into the lie that the, that the world, the secular world, hates all Christians. Because while there are haters out there, there are so many people right now that are scared and they're looking for real Christians, someone that will really demonstrate that God can make a difference in their lives. So everyone, for everyone that rejects you, for everyone that may make fun of you, for everyone that may put you down, don't forget there are a whole bunch of other ears and eyes that are looking and listening and wondering, is there really truth to this Christian thing? And you and I get the opportunity to show them that there is. You know, one of the questions while I was working on this message that came to my mind was, you know, how is it people, how, how can you not like Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? How can you not like Jesus? I mean, when Jesus came, he was so humble, so gentle, so compassionate. I mean, he healed, he delivered, he elevated children and women. He honored them with dignity as his creation. He loved them. He treated people with equality. He spent time, you know, with people that nobody else wanted to spend time with. He touched the lepers. I mean, how do you not like somebody like that? And I'll give you two reasons why. Why they didn't like Jesus in his day and why there are people that don't like Jesus today. Number one is because, first of all, Jesus says, if you're going to save your life, you've got to be willing to lose it. And we don't like that. See, we're all about identity. And if you're trying to base your identity on yourself, on your feelings, on your accomplishments, on your sexuality, whatever it is, and Jesus says, nope, you've got to lose that and put your identity in me, Pride will keep us from doing that. And so some people, you know, they want to respect Jesus as a guru, but they don't want to accept him as Lord because they don't want to base their identity in him. And it goes right back to our first parents who didn't want to base their identity in God as the creator. But you know, there's a second reason why they crucified Jesus, why they rejected him. And it's because he didn't want to fight. He didn't want to lead a fight. You know, if Jesus had wanted to, he could have easily led a massive protest all the way up to Jerusalem. If Jesus had wanted to, he could have gotten people to draw their swords and he could have led a rebellion. People were ready for that, but he didn't. Instead, he spoke the truth in love. He set clear boundaries he called for repentance. He said, the way to win is to lose. The way to live is to die to yourself. And while everybody was talking smack in his face and behind his back, and they put him on the cross, he died to show how much he loves this world. That's just amazing, isn't it? And are we willing to do the same thing? Are we willing to lose ourselves for the sake of Christ? Are we willing not to get angry, not to pick sides, not to get in a fight, not to try to resolve things politically and, and militantly? And are we willing just to live out our faith to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to be Jesus in this world. So that's who Daniel was. 
He was Jesus there in the Medo-Persian Empire. Before that, he was being Jesus there in the Babylonian Empire. Will we be Jesus here in America? Will we represent his kingdom here, near, and far? There's one more thought I want to bring out from this story, and that is that as Christians, we should be a beacon of hope in the darkness of evil. We should be a beacon of hope in the darkness of evil. Listen, when is the light the most bright? When it's the darkest, right? That's when it's the brightest. When things are really bad, that's when it really radiates and really shines. And when is it, when is it more dark than when you've experienced loss or when you're suffering or when you're facing death? It doesn't get darker than that. But it's in those moments, if our faith is firmly rooted in Christ, we're drawing from him as our identity, but it's in those moments that we are his most powerful witnesses. You know, Daniel, when he was put in that den, was not expecting to come out alive, I don't think. He had no idea. But he was willing to go down there in the den with those lions and die for what was right rather than capitulate or compromise. It just so happened that God in that moment chose to honor himself, to make a statement to Darius by rescuing and and by saving Daniel. But not everybody who enters the lion's den, is rescued and saved, so to speak. Some are allowed to suffer and some are allowed to die because that is the most powerful, powerful witness of all of the truth of who God is when you can lose your life over it. And that brings me to a story that I promised I would share with you from my recent trip over to Asia. I'm not going to tell you which country I was in, but in one of the countries that I had a chance to visit, due to a mix-up in schedule, I had a little extra time, and I was allowed to go and visit a church out in a very remote village, which, by the way, for those of you who are part of Wooddale Church, is the outcome of your giving. It's just one small token of what God is doing through what you are giving in our desire to plant 30,000 churches in the next 10 years in this particular part of Asia. So I'm actually going to take you and I'm going to talk to you about the fruit of what God's doing because of your faithfulness. About four years ago, right before COVID happened, there was a man who came to faith in Christ and he had been an extremist, a rebel, a troublemaker. And just his story of how he came to faith is miraculous. And I'll tell you that some other time. But he had come to faith and he began to really grow fast in his faith and strong in his faith. He became, you know, radical for Jesus, so to speak. And he was leading people to faith in Christ in his own village. And so he and some of those people went to a neighboring village about a half a mile away, and they began to witness in this village as well. 
and about 35 people came to faith and were baptized. Well, when the village leaders found out about this, they were very angry that these people would leave behind their religion and convert to Jesus Christ. And so they rounded up the 35 people because they found out who they were. And they took them to this very small little house. I saw it. It was actually a little schoolhouse. Very, very small. And they stuck them in there and locked them up for a day and a night. They took two of the men out of that group and tied them to trees all night long and punished them. The next day, they took them out to this field I got a picture of the field. I can show you that. It's a soccer field. And they held court. The entire village showed up, a couple hundred people. Tables were put out in this field. So imagine a table here. And the people were all lined up, the 35, in one big long line. And everybody had to come by and everybody had to sign their name on a sheet of paper stating that they were renouncing their faith in Jesus Christ. And if they didn't, they were going to be beaten. One by one, they walked by the table and wrote their names out and recanted their faith. And toward the end, there were about six people left, and one was an older woman. When the pen was handed to this older woman, who's a relatively new convert, she took that pen, and on the paper, she drew a cross. And when she did that, they grabbed her and beat on her and beat on her, and she died. Now, what do you think the next five behind her did? The opposite of what you might think. They were so inspired by her courage and her bravery that they also refused to sign their names. And I guess they were so tired from beating that woman up that when they beat these other five, they were unable to kill them, badly injured them. A girl escaped from there went to a neighboring village and found a policeman who was sympathetic toward Christians. He showed up with the equivalent of their cops and put an end to the whole thing and just said, if there's any more violence here, there's going to be a heavy, heavy fine, and some of you are going to be put in jail. So stop the violence. And from those five that remained faithful, a church was born in that village. Now, what's interesting is I got to meet the daughter of the woman who was beaten to death. She came to the service where I had an opportunity to share a hopeful message with these folks. And what I found out as I was sitting there listening to their stories is they haven't stopped witnessing. What they do is at night, they actually go outside of the village and they meet people in secret. Others who have watched their lives and can tell there's something different about their faith and their their belief and want to know about it. And so they're actually leading people to Jesus in the dark outside of the village. And then they go back into the village. Nobody's allowed to visit their homes, those who are Christians. If you do, it's a $60 fine. But I want to tell you what, when I met with them and heard them singing, 
and heard them praising God and saw the faces of men and women and children, old and young alike, I thought to myself, there's only one way to explain this. Somebody was willing to give up their life so that the light of Christ would shine brighter than it had ever shone before in that dark place in the world. And that light is attracting and it's changing people. And here's a picture of the little congregation that I got to be with. And like I said, one of these individuals is a, is a daughter of the woman who was killed. And it's because of that woman's willingness to die for Jesus that you have these folks who've given their hearts to Jesus and more quietly, steadily are coming to faith in Christ. Now, isn't that, isn't that what Jesus did? You know, if you think about Daniel in the lion's den, you know who the real, you know who the real lion is? <laughs> the real lion is Jesus. See what you mean by that? Well, think about it. Jesus devours sin and death so that you and I can be set free. So you and I can be forgiven. So that you and I can have hope and eternal life. So yeah, things might get kind of rough. Things might get kind of challenging for you at work or at school. But I just want you to remember, for every person that rejects you, for every person that may make fun of you or even threaten you, there are so many more who are waiting for somebody to step forward and to be Jesus. Will it be you? Let's pray. Father, I pray and ask that you would marry this message to our hearts, that you would help us to resolve in our minds and our spirits that we are going to live for you and put you first. And Lord, I pray that because we live like salt and light and because we're willing to stand above all the persecution we might face and be like Jesus, I pray that so many hearts and lives will come to know you and trust you and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.